And I'm John Henderson, and one of the associate pastors uh, here at UBC, one of the elders. And so it's a joy for me to be able to jump in in these weeks ahead with you on matters of the heart. That's going to be our overall theme for this semester of ABF, where really we're going to take yeah, each Sunday at 9 a.m. and consider and develop from Scripture sort of a practical theology of the heart. You know, how do we think about what the Bible says to us about the inner person, the soul, um, and how that's supposed to be connected to life? When I think about, you know, systematic theology, I think about, okay, there's some truth, some doctrine from Scripture you may take, and then you just connect it to all the other passages. You draw a straight line to those, to all the other passages in the Bible to form sort of a systematic theology of that doctrine. When I think of biblical theology, you'll take some doctrine or truth of Scripture and just draw a straight line through the storyline of the Bible and show how does that doctrine develop through the redemptive history of Scripture. You think of historical theology, and that's, okay, take a doctrine or truth of Scripture and then draw a straight line through the history of the church. And how does that, starting in Scripture and where it is, how has that doctrine sort of been understood and taught throughout the history of the church? When I think of practical theology, I think, okay, take some truth or teaching our doctrine from Scripture and draw a straight line to the way we live, to the way we think, to the way we feel, to the way we relate to others. And so it's directly, it's applied theology. And so that's really part of what our goal is in these weeks ahead is to take just this truth about what does the Bible teach about the heart, about the inner person, about the soul, and then draw a straight line to the way we live, to the way we think and feel and relate. So that's some of what we're going to do. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Father, we thank you that we can even gather this morning. We see that that is a a gift of your grace. We give thanks to you, O Lord, because you are good, because your steadfast love does endure forever. We give thanks to you as the God of all gods, as the creator of all things, as the Lord of lords, as the one who alone does great wonders. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to these great wonders this morning that you have done in creating us and forming us and calling us to, to you, reconciling us through your Son. We pray that you'd help us to believe all that your Word has declared and proclaimed, firstly about you, but then also about ourselves. And we pray that you would yeah, draw a direct line from your word to our hearts to the way we live. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, between the Old and New Testaments, there's about 850 or so direct references to the heart. There's approximately 300 direct references to the soul. There's approximately 150 direct references to the mind. And all of those words allude in one way or another to the inner person, to the spiritual substance of yourself, to the inside that's sort of embodied in this physical shell, to the self, that immortal aspect of our being that is for now clothed in this sort of temporary material body, and it's later to be clothed with a new spiritual glorious material body. And then if we just think about even the indirect references to the heart, to the soul, it's beyond calculation to where anytime you see words like passions, desires, longings, cravings, love, hate, I mean, all those words are inner person words. 
They're things that we do from sort of the inside, out through our bodies, things we experience through our bodies, but in the inner person. So I think we need to ask ourselves to begin with, why on earth does God talk about it so much? Why does he see fit to speak to over 1,100 direct references to your inner person and then countless allusions and indirect references to it? I think one reason we could say is because it matters so much to God. That's one reason. Joel 2.13 says, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Just think about that statement. Rend your heart and not your garments. When you come to him, what he's interested in is not all the external performance stuff. It's a heart that is contrite, humble, submitted, broken, repentant, that that's the thing we're offering. And it'll be a theme we come back to time and time again all this semester is because he knows if he gets his, our hearts, he gets everything else. The body will follow. All the external stuff will come with time. The second reason is because the heart really is the primary focus of salvation. Yes, there's going to be the body that will be someday redeemed and glorified. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. But right now, the real promise of the new covenant is what? Promise of a new what? It's a new heart. It's in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You may think, okay, so he's going to like rain? No, he's going to say, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So even when he uses the illustration of sprinkling clean water on you and you will be clean, that external image is just a metaphor for what he's going to do to your insides. And even the cleansing of, from idols isn't, okay, I'm going to stop you going into temples and bowing down to statues. What he goes, it's, there's this direct relationship between I'm going to cleanse you from your idols to I'm going to give you a new heart which means the Bible's understanding of idolatry is much deeper than just bowing down to statues. When any thing in all of creation is given more value, more worth, more love, more affection, more devotion than God. And so the outer idolatry stuff is just the visible sort of expression of what was already happening on the inside. Yeah, somebody actually just said to me this week when we were talking about sports and our boys in sports said, you know, yeah, sports uh, teaches and trains character. And I thought about it, I said, I don't know if I agree. I think it reveals character. I don't think it teaches it. I think those sorts of places, it doesn't sort of forge who you are. It's, it's going to expose who you are. It's the spirit that teaches character. It's the word of God that teaches character. It's all the, ex everything else just exposes it. That's so why I often will say, yeah, this happened, I, I got really angry. Somebody did this and I got angry. Well, really, no, no, somebody did that and exposed anger in me. It exposed how angry I am. Because we'll, we often have a direct connection to, okay, this thing happened and it made me this. As opposed to this thing happened and exposed what was in me already. It's a very different way of thinking about how the heart works. 
And that's some of what we're going to kind of talk about in the weeks ahead is how does God's word really help us understand the way the heart works, how it interacts with the body, how it interacts with the social surroundings, how it interacts in our families and communities, why it does what it does. So yeah, it matters a lot to God. It's the primary focus of the new covenant and our salvation. But then thirdly, another simple answer to why does he talk about it so much is because it matters so much to human life. It affects everything, dramatically, drastically. Listen to Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Just think about that image that Solomon's giving us for a minute. Here's this, especially in an agricultural, agrarian sort of society, where the well of water was the life of your community. Like, imagine this little community and village and all these homes and farms, and in the middle there's this well of water that they've dug, and out from this water it goes to the houses, that's what you drink from, goes to the troughs, it's what your animals drink from, it goes to your fields, it's what you water with when it's dry, all those types of things. And imagine if that water gets contaminated, that it gets poisoned. How much will that affect? Right? It'll touch everything. Your crops will start to die. Your animals will start to die. You will start to get sick. You know, stuff will start to grow on your, in your homes from just this polluted water. And what we tend to do, we think, oh, look, the crops are withering. Let's put something on the crops to make them not wither. Okay, the animals are getting sick. Let's just give them more vitamins. Okay, I'm getting sick. And we tend to do what I call downstream sort of remediation. Rather than really, what's the problem? The well is the problem. Fix the well. Fix what's coming out of it. And that's how the scripture thinks about the heart. That's what Solomon's saying here. Keep your heart with all diligence because from it flow your words and your reactions to suffering and the way you relate to God and other people. And so if something is wrong downstream, we tend to think, okay, let's just patch that up with fill in the blank. Rather than, okay, there's something amiss in the heart. That's what needs to change. So it's interesting that Elisha, his first miracle, who knows what his first miracle was of Elijah in 2 Kings 2? You may know the first miracle of Elisha after Elijah's taken up. Remember what he heals? Actually heals a well of water at Jericho. Yeah, even it's worth reading. Yeah, 2 Kings 2. Now the men of the city of Jericho said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. It's an important statement. Look at the city, how cool the buildings are, how great the views, how pretty the landscape. Like the the, the situation here is really pleasant. It's great, as you can see. But then they say, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. In other words, everything you see looks great. The outside looks wonderful, but there's something you can't quite see that's wrong. The water's bad. Now, why is the water bad? Well, because God had put a curse on Jericho after Joshua came through and conquered it. That, okay, whoever rebuilds the city, they will set the foundation with the death of their firstborn and lay the gates the death of their youngest. And so some guy decided we're going to build it anyway at that cost. But then the city, there's still that curse on it. The water is part of that. It's bad. It's unfruitful. And Elisha said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elijah spoke. Now, is it just God is just really interested in the Old Testament and and just making sure the waters are pure? Or is there a lesson we're meant to see here? This is the first miracle of this prophet, according to the word of the Lord. I think he's saying something about the nation, saying something about the world that, okay, yeah, it may look fine, but you're unfruitful. And everything that's coming from you is killing stuff. And it isn't just a superficial problem. It's not just a a clean up the downstream. It's, okay, you need a new heart. You need the Lord to put something inside you to make your heart new. So that's why we're going to take some time in these weeks ahead and just consider all the Scripture, at least a lot of what the Scripture has to teach us about our hearts. Because it really is impossible to stress how important this is, how sort of truthful, practical theology of the heart has direct relevance to our lives every hour, every day. So today what we're going to do is talk about, that was all just intro, by the way. Today we're going to, now we're going to get into the lesson, which is the creation of the heart. That's where we're going to start. And so everybody, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the creation of the heart, where we're going to see just kind of where all this started, how this came about, how we ended up being sort of souls inside physical bodies. And then we're going to look at just some important words that the scripture uses to try to talk about the inner person. And that's going to be important because there's just so many misconceptions. There's so many things that just get said out there. Like we'll say things like, oh, don't, don't overthink it. Just follow your heart. And we don't realize, okay, so we just created a dichotomy that the Bible doesn't understand, doesn't separate those kinds of things. And so even the way you know, or, you know, don't, don't worry, don't follow your emotions, don't feel, just think truth. Or we'll pit these parts of the inner person against each other in a way the Bible just doesn't, in the way the language of the Bible doesn't allow us to do. Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So even in that sense, we're getting, okay, this is going to be a distinctive part of God's creation. There's animals, there's going to be vegetation, there's going to be everything that's in the world, but then now there's going to be this creature God's going to make that's going to be in his image. And it's going to sort of serve a purpose that nothing else serves and over everything else. So so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Isn't it interesting how he repeats that? Let's create someone in our image. And then it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And you go, is that just God needs to fill the space? Or is there something he's trying to convey there? From beginning to end, don't ever lose sight of the fact that you're created in God's image. And that this is part of what makes human beings very distinctive. Male and female, he created them. And so he sort of resolved to create a being who would image him. Who would be sort of a physical representative over the rest of creation. His physical representative. Who would be a living spirit but kind of contained in this physical body. And so it's not until Genesis 2 that we see how he did it. So 
Flip over from there to Genesis 2-7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, which he's not going to say that about any other part of creation. So he's going to get the dust, and like a potter, he's going to mold man. He's going to mold Adam. And he's going to mold in so much detail that he's able to, second part of the verse, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, so whatever he did with the dirt, whatever he's doing with the clay, he did enough to make nostrils, that kind of shaping and forming of his body, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So he formed his physical body from the dust, something unique to his creation, then animated his body with a soul by breathing, says here, the breath of life into him. That's also unique. This is why Adam isn't just going to be a, a clay sculpture. But he's gonna, God's going to actually breathe the breath of life into him. And so created with a heart. That's kind of our point A there on the outline. And God created Adam's body, but then he put spiritual life into him, a soul into him, a heart into his body. And so what Scripture does is going to identify that inner part of Adam with lots of different words that aren't really saying, okay, your inner person has seven distinctive parts. But rather, God has lots of words that he uses to describe your inner person and different aspects of your inner person. And one of those is just the word heart. It's actually probably one of the biggest words the Bible uses to just catch. And this is the words of Craig Troxell, the totality and unity of our inner nature. So when God talks about our hearts in the Bible, he's talking about, okay, the totality and unity of our inner nature. That's one of the books that I kind of recommend for this semester if you're, if you're a reader, but With All Your Heart, a new book by Craig Troxell that's just a really helpful kind of look at, at the, what the Bible teaches about the heart. We see one of those, those passages in Genesis eight twenty one, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, leb is the Hebrew word there, in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart, leb, same word, is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So you notice how the Lord refers to both his heart, his inner person, and, and Adam's and man's with, with the same Hebrew word. And even some of your translations of the Bible will say the Lord said to himself. Really, the, the literal is led, said in his heart. But yet some translate it said to himself because the word heart here refers to the person, the whole of their inner being. So the Lord saying in his heart is the Lord saying to himself, I'm not going to do this again. Because the word heart is a way of referring to the totality and unity of his being. So part of being made in the image of God is having a heart, an inner self that can reason, that can think, that can relate that can love, that can hate, that can have a will. So these are things that we, we don't see God saying about the rest of creation. So even when he says here in Genesis eight twenty one, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, he never says that about the animals. So I'm sorry to say this will be another, well, it won't be a theme, but it'll be one reason there won't be dogs in heaven. Sorry, folks. Or cats. Or if there are, they're because he creates them anew. He may do that. Could create a bunch of animals to be there. But the idea of a, there being souls, hearts, 
in the animals. Now that's, so Disney gets that. But really the scriptures know this is one way in which we're completely distinctive from the rest of creation is we have that inner person, that inner self, that heart in us. Inner self is another word the Bible used, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart, though the outer self, exo, outer, exo self, is wasting away. So he's going to sort of show a distinction between outer and inner. Our inner self, esothene, is being renewed day by day. And the reason there I even share those Greek words is because that phrase outer self, those are two different Greek words, exo, eso. Inner self, esothin, is one word. In other words, you have an outer to yourself, inner self, all one thing. And there he sees a distinction there. The, the outer self is wasting away. And the longer we live, hopefully the, the more we realize this, right? Like just the years go on and you can just tell, okay, this thing isn't working the way it used to be. Yeah, my family can remember the day that I had to crawl back into our house because I was outside, I was pulling a weed, bending over at an angle, and I sneezed at the same time, threw my back out. I couldn't get up. I had to crawl back into my house. So that's when you know it's starting to go, is you can't do two things at once without throwing your back out. Like either pull the weed or sneeze, but don't do both at one time. So that outer self wasting away, but then he says, but the inner self is being renewed day by day. And we'll come back to those kinds of themes. That's why things like depression and anxiety or joy or hope or despair, all those kinds of inner person words can't possibly just be biologically caused. Otherwise, this verse couldn't be true. Because the biology, Paul's saying, that's going down. It's getting worse. But joy is going up. Hope is going up. Peace is going up. The inner self, we'll talk about it. It doesn't mean the body isn't involved. It is. It just means the body isn't running everything. The body isn't in charge. The body isn't the determining force. It's going down, the inner person going up. You even see how losing heart in 2 Corinthians 4 is related to inner self. So he says we don't lose heart. Why not? Well, because the inner self is being renewed day by day. Another word is the word being that the Bible used. Psalm 108, my heart, Leb, there's that word again, is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Kabod is the Hebrew word there. It can be translated literally splendor, which is a word that is actually derived from the word for weight. It's really a great statement in Psalm 108. What, what he's saying here is, I will sing and make melody with all the weight of my glory. All the weight of my inner being is what I'm going to use to give praise to God. It's a great statement about sort of what worship is, what God really wants, is all the weight of my inner person thrown into praising him, loving him, following him. Soul is another word you'll see throughout Scripture, Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, Labab, related to Leb, with all your soul, Nefesh, which literally means vitality, with all your might, Mehod, which means vehemence, actually, is the literal meaning. Isn't that great to think about it that way? Sometimes I wish that was the word that was thrown in there in the translation. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and vehemence. With just all that passion you've got. We translate it usually might or strength. All your energy. Mind is another word we see throughout Scripture. Romans 8, 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, from neo, it's a verb, on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, God's Spirit, pneuma, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind, from nema, there's the noun, the mind, on the flesh is death. But to set the mind, same word, on the Spirit, is life and peace. So again, just another word God uses to speak to that, that inner person, that part of us that we willfully set on things. We either set it upon the things of the Spirit or we set it upon the things of the flesh. That's why, I mean, I, th- I would imagine the disciples, it was probably helpful and kept them from being too overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus to not fully grasp who he was. Because if you're hanging out with God every day and you know he can read your mind, would that make you nervous? Would it be concerning that he knows what you're feeling all the time? He knows what you're thinking? That's why it's so amazing how patient, how gracious, how loving Jesus is toward his disciples. When you think about the fact that he heard everything they thought. He heard everything they felt. He heard what they talked about when he was out of earshot. And I just go, why wouldn't he the grumpy guy, grumpiest guy that ever lived? To have to listen to that every day. But yet we just see something in the compassion, the mercy, the graciousness of God in Christ who just can be in all of that and hear what our minds are set on and just still love us, care for us, bear with us. We tend to associate the mind with the thinking aspect of our inner being, which I think is right. But then as I said earlier, we tend to wrongly pit that against the emotional and effective aspects of our inner being. And so even that phrase, oh, well, they're just not very emotional. I just, I don't think that's ever true. I think what we mean is, I don't think they're very emotionally expressive. That may be a better way to think about it, because there's no human being created with a soul and a heart that isn't emotional. We just, different people express it different ways. Different people are conscious of it in different ways. But there's no doubt we feel things. Emotion is there. And the mind and the emotions are are always connected. There's no way you feel sad emotionally without thinking things, often sad things. And there's no way that you're thinking sad things without also then feeling it. So in a lot of ways, they can't necessarily be separated. But then there's a lot of sort of attempts that we'll make to try to separate. Really, even stoicism is, okay, the mind, the thinking part of you is much more important, much more trustworthy, much more accurate than your emotions. And so you need to, to sort of control the emotions. You need to stuff those sort of down and just let reason prevail. Again, it's one of those other things that Scripture just doesn't teach the heart that way because it's often our reasoning that most gets us into trouble sometimes, just as often as the emotions do. So that's why we have to go sort of the Scripture and go, okay, Lord, how do you explain us? How do you put all this together? And not just listen to pop psychology or pop culture, sort of understand who we are. Will is another word Scripture uses. Romans 9, 8, so it depends not on human will, 
though it's a verb here, thelo, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or John 1, 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Thelema, it's a noun, but of God. So our will refers to our determination, our choice, our decree, our intention. So the the will that gets at all those different parts of us. It's what Joshua is getting at, Joshua 24, 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's sort of expressing will there, determination, intention. Or Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So present your bodies. So you get the sense where Paul doesn't see this idea, okay, the body is in charge leading it. No, no, you present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Here's the opposite. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so part of our spiritual worship is conforming our minds, our intentions, our determinations to his. And in doing that, we're we're presenting our bodies every day in an act of worship. Our bodies as temples of his Holy Spirit. That's another word scripture uses, the word spirit. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, Proverbs 16.2, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Ruach is the Hebrew word there. Just even how sobering that is, that all my ways, all my ways can be pure in my own eyes. I can feel great about all of it. And then the Lord takes my spirit and weighs it, puts it on a scale, sees the real motivations, the real intentions. The real, what really compelled it all, and that he ends up with a very different answer than the answer I had in my own eyes. That's why David's going to pray things like, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any unbecoming way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why would he pray that? Because David doesn't trust himself. He's like, I am not the best assessment of myself. I don't have the clearest sight lines into what's going on inside of me. I'm so easily deceived that I can convince myself it's all fine. So he prays, Lord, search me and try me. See if there's anything in me that is unpleasing, unbecoming to you, and change that about me. And God is never offended by that prayer. Always loves that prayer. Always loves when we come to him that way. So the word ruach literally means wind or breath. So it often refers to the life breath of a person, to the living part of them. And when applied to God with the word holy in front of it, it's a reference to the third person of the Trinity, his Holy Spirit. Yeah, Proverbs 20, 27, we see a different word even for spirit used. Proverbs 20, 27, the spirit, neshama of man, is the lamp of the Lord. Searching all his innermost parts. So there we see it. You know, the spirit, the neshama of the man 
is the lamp of the Lord. It's like this picture of what sort of shines on the inside and it illuminates all the innermost parts. You know, Paul's going to say, who, who knows the man except the spirit of the man? But then who knows the Lord but the spirit of the Lord? So the, <clears throat> that Hebrew word, neshama, literally means puff. What a statement. Just, we have this puff in us, this breath, and it's usually translated spirit. Or Job 32.8, it is the spirit, ruach in man, the breath, neshama, of the Almighty that makes him understand. It's actually, it's verses like that are, that are so vital to how we understand ourselves. Just this idea that, okay, it's the spirit, the Ruach and man, the breath of the Almighty that makes you have understanding. In other words, does understanding, real understanding come from your brain? Or does it come from the spirit that God has put in you? And that your brain is a physiological sort of correlate to it. It's something that's connected to it. And the brain is something that God is part of our physiology that God has put together that helps us experience and process and express. But it's actually not the seat of understanding. It's not the place where the knowledge of God really happens. Which is why you can have somebody who has brain injury, someone who has sort of inhibited cognitive ability, and they know God. Because God is able to do something in delivering his word, revealing himself through the Spirit. It's just we can't comprehend it. We can't necessarily see it. We'll talk about this more even at the end of this morning, just how naturalism just turns all this upside down. The idea that nature is all there is. The idea that only the physical stuff really exists, really matters. So this takes us back to Genesis 2-7 and the creation of Adam, where he says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed, nefach, verb, into his nostrils, the breath, neshama, there's that line, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, a being, a breathing creature with personhood is the idea. And we need to realize that that invisible spiritual part of us is an aspect of the image of God in us, part of God imaging himself through us and reflecting, us reflecting him in life. And it's a big part of what separates us from the animals. And this is, this is something that evolutionary theory just cannot contend with, the idea that people are qualitatively different creatures than everything else. No way. We just evolved from chimpanzees, evolved from everything else. There is a very different kind of spirit in us, a qualitatively different kind of being on the inside. It's why when God withdraws reason from Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.32, you may know that story where, where Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar, if you exalt yourself one more time above God, he's going to strike you. And by strike you means sort of, you're going to, he's going to remove reason and you're going to be like an animal. You're going to look like that. So sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar goes out, exalts himself and goes, wow, look at this great kingdom I've built. I am amazing. And immediately God withdraws reason from Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, then he goes away from human society and he starts eating grass in a field like a cow. 
is acting like a cow, sort of thinking he's a cow, not really entirely looking like a cow other than all the hair that's growing in the nails, but yet you would look at him and go, okay, that's a dude. But that dude thinks he's a cow. And we're meant to look at it and go, something's wrong here. This isn't something about the dignity of this person, something about who they're meant to be, what they're created to be, is not working out. Well, what is that thing? Well, it's the removing of reason. Whereas you go out into the fields and you see cows and they're eating and grazing and laying around and doing what they do. Nobody goes, oh, wow, that's strange. No, it's their cows. You think that's what cows look like. But when you see a person out there crawling around on all fours among the cows, eating grass, mooing, you're like, okay, something's off. And that's what we're meant to see all through the scriptures, that distinctive part, that inner person, that reasoning ability, that part of us that relates to God in personal ways. So this is, again, where evolutionary theory is drastically antithetical to scripture in this way, that we're qualitatively different kinds of creatures. 